from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. The actress Lori Metcalf is best known for her work on Roseanne in the 1980s and 90s. She played Roseanne's younger sister, Jackie. And I guess I didn't mean to imply that you're some right-wing jackass. I should have tried to understand why you voted the crazy way that you did. (laughs) That is Metcalf in the new resumed Roseanne, which has immediately become the most popular show on television. And happened right after she co-starred in the terrific film Lady Bird, for which she got her first Oscar nomination, and right after she'd won her first Tony Award for the Broadway play A Doll's House Part Two. You don't get angry. Of course I do. Maybe once you Right now I feel angry. You don't act! (laughs) Constipated. And now, Laurie Metcalf is on Broadway once again for a revival of a great play, Edward Albee's Three Tall Women. Metcalf plays one of those tall women, along with Alison Pill and Glenda Jackson. So before we get to uh, all of your new successes and megastardom, I want to talk about your youth. Mm. You grew up in southern Illinois, Mm -hmm. went to... uh, Illinois State for college. That's right. Then you moved to Chicago. Why didn't you want to leave your Midwestern state like I did mine as soon as I could? Oh, yeah, yeah. The short answer is that by that time, I had met up with my co-conspirators who started Steppenwolf Theater. In Chicago? uh, No, we met at school. really? And that's what took us um, to Chicago. Not Chicago proper, just to the suburbs. Which suburb? Uh, Highland Park. Uh-huh. Yeah, so two of the guys, Jeff Perry and Gary Sinise, had been had grown up in Highland Park, and they knew of a church basement that we could rent for a dollar a month. Wow. And so that's where we began. So all these people, I mean, in, in addition to you, there's Michael Shannon and Martha Plimpton and John Malkovich and the playwright Bruce Norris and the playwright actor uh, Tracy Letts, with whom you've acted recently. Very recently. Yeah. And it, we've been looking for something to do for ages, and it took a movie to bring us you were, together. You were, in Lady, you were married to each other in, yes, in Lady Bird. Yes, we were, yeah. But we've never shared the stage together. We really? still want to do that. You were lucky, and all these talented people were drawn to this one place. Mm-hmm. But was there a style or a sensibility or a philosophy that you all shared? There was a style, and I don't know how to describe it. People labeled us rock and roll theater. And I think it was just because we were young, we had a ton of energy, and And what fed us was that creative juice of being on stage. I had not seen you on stage until uh, Three Tall Women, but watching your performances on television and in film, you are so naturalistic. You are so convincingly like, well, that person's not acting. Is that a thing you tried to do or you were good at or that Steppenwolf honed? Yeah, I think we did put a lot of um, pressure on ourselves to be that way, to perform at a high level of of intensity, but also keep it grounded. That might be part of what the Uh style is, I, I would think. That's a particular kind of talent. Yeah, I still kind of do work that way now that you say it. You know, I, I, it's hard to talk about your own 
bag of tricks or whatever, <laughs> yes. you know, or let's call it process. Yes. <laughs> no bag of tricks. Yeah. It's hard to <laughs> verbalize it because I, well, I'm never asked to verbalize it, you know, because I just know instinctively I just get in a rehearsal room and start trying things, right. you know. Well, here, here's an example of what I'm talking about. It's a clip from uh, from Lady Bird from last year, and your character is, is shopping for clothes with her daughter, Lady Bird, played by Saoirse Ronan. So if you're tired, we can sit down. I'm not tired. Oh, okay. I just couldn't tell because you were dragging your feet. Well, I just couldn't tell. Why didn't you just say pick up your feet? I didn't know if you were tired. You were being passive aggressive. No, I wasn't. You are so infuriated. Please stop yelling. I'm not yelling. Oh, it's Honey, perfect. I love it. Just so nailed it, being the husband of somebody and the father of two daughters. <laughs> and, and and the family all said, oh, yeah, okay, that's mm. mom and the girls. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I would have not just not been surprised, but probably bet money that that had been ad-libbed to some degree. But then mm-hmm. I look at Greta Gerwig's script, mm-hmm. that's pretty much yeah, it, verbatim. word for word. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, well, that, you know, it's to her credit. I mean, the, her, her writing, her dialogue, it is naturalistic. And another great thing is that she allowed us to have some overlapping. You know, language seems more stilted without it. So with it, it comes across as much more naturalistic. That old Robert Altman trick. Mm. But as one of your bag of tricks, <laughs> is it in your head or are there, I'll hesitate in this way? Or how does that work? Sometimes, what? yeah, there is technique. So, yeah, I can sort of in my head here, a pause would work nicely there, or I know that if I'm going to come in, interrupt her line, I have to have heard these words, obviously, or it won't make sense. Right. So uh, it, the, the timing is crucial in making it look like there's no timing being done. Right. You have to have a, a nice 50-50 marriage of instinct and technique. Yeah. Having been the mother of children and daughters, does that make playing that role a lot easier? It did make playing this role easier yeah. because on the page, I, I saw exactly what Greta was going for. You know, I saw the the headbutting and it's a, it's a, just a tiny slice of life that we're seeing the, this mother and daughter relationship. It's, it's not always been this way and it won't always be this right. way. This is just where we're seeing them right now. And I've had teenagers in the house and I've had things come out of my mouth that I wish I could take back. Yeah. And I've seen, you know, the— Not uh, that and, bad, I hope. Well, no, no, you know, some of that—I mean, that's just that tough love thing. Yeah. It's, it's all coming from a place of love, but it comes out so aggressive because you're so frustrated with this kid who isn't living up to their potential. And you just want to shake them, you know, so things come out. And so yeah. it was hard for me to to watch it afterwards. I mean, in the scene, I felt totally justified, of course, saying those things that I did to her. But then watching it, I was like, oh, my God, that's harsh. You turned away from the screen, looked away when the clip started playing. Do you avoid watching yourself or is it just that scene? No, I don't like seeing myself on anything on film or TV because in my head, it's completely different. And then when I see it, I'm like, well, that's not what I intended. I have a a five-year rule. I like to look at something about after five years has passed after I've done it because I've forgotten all the words, obviously. And I can just be amazed at how I learned all those words <laughs> and, and it's and, at ar- it's at arm's length. At that yes, point. yes. Um, you were pretty strictly a, a stage actor until you were thirty. Yeah, right? Yes, um, definitely. How how did you make that jump into film and television, being this just this girl in Chicago? Well, we had 
taken a play called Balmagilead by Lanford Wilson from Chicago to New York, and that went r- very well. It ran for nine months. And so based on that, there were casting directors who came to see that, and I got a role in my first movie, which was Desperately Seeking Susan. Good good first movie. It was, yeah. The chicken is for tomorrow. Larry, I can't believe the two of you are eating in the middle of a crisis like this. We're nervous. What do you want? Then take a volume like a normal person. And during that time, I was literally in the right place at the right time because they were casting Roseanne. And the same casting directors who cast Desperately Seeking Susan were looking for her sister. Anyway, I I hesitated and— Did you hesitate for, like, I am a theater person, reasons or not? Kind of, yeah, because that's 30 years ago when we did that pilot. And TV had a big of a stigma attached to it, you know, for working actors. It's just very different now. It's now, almost TV, the opposite. It's yeah. almost the opposite because yeah. there's such such great writing. And yeah. Back then, I you know I didn't want to be known as Urkel for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah. mean, you you escaped that particular fate. I did because the show was different. Yeah. It was, I think, the way that Roseanne had set it up. She was willing to sacrifice laughs sometimes for the shows every once in a while to be about a serious issue. Totally. And here is a scene uh, from Roseanne uh, in 1993 that illustrates that very thing. It's the episode where the Connors deal with the death of Roseanne's father. You, of course, play uh, Roseanne's sister, Jackie. Oh, that one. That's it. I'm not making any more calls. You do the rest of the family list. I can't call people, Roseanne. Jackie, dial. Supposed to be in mourning. Well, then wear a bail over your face while you do it. <laughs> Can't. Annie Barbara? It's Jackie. Jackie. I'm fine. Fine. I'm fine. I have some bad news. Dad is not with us anymore. I said, Dad has passed away. He's passed away. Dad is gone. Dad's dead. He's dead. No, dead. Dad. He's fine. He sends his love. Fine. I am not doing that again. You can't make me. It's it's dark and real. It's, yeah, you know who wrote that? Uh, Norm Macdonald. Really? Yeah, he wrote that when he was a writer on the show for a season. Huh. Yeah, he came up with that. And it has the brilliant cutaway to Roseanne just holding her head in her hand. Yeah. <laughs> and, and absolutely, there's nothing about that scene that couldn't be drawn from many of our real lives. You know? Yeah, I guess that's what I was talking about with being played at a really high energy level, but trying to keep it grounded. Yeah. Yeah. Here is your character, Aunt Jackie, uh, uh, as she's introduced in this new season. You can't watch it because it's too new. That's right. I haven't seen it. <laughs> What's up, deplorable? <laughs> uh, that's her speaking to Roseanne. Uh, if you'd been watching, which you weren't, uh, you'd see it played in a very funny way. Uh, you were wearing the pink knit pussy hat yes. uh, and, and a nasty woman T-shirt. Yeah, and I had probably the best introduction line of all time. It was great. Especially considering that it you hadn't seen that character in 20 years. I, it's got That's got to be a yeah. historical opening line. Yes. Does that character in that way, in that political way, conform more or less with Laurie Metcalf's politics? Yeah. 
you know, we had to get into politics because how could we not? You know, because it's first and foremost, you pick up the Connor family and plunk them down in 2018. You've got to address well, the election. The, and the fact that Roseanne, as a real person, is a Trump supporter, as well as her character, playing one on TV as well. Yes, yes. Uh, which has obviously dominated a lot of the chatter so far. Yeah, right. Has that been difficult? Not on the set. No, we don't. Um, Just all your other time. <laughs> We don't we don't get into it on the set at all. You know, we're just enjoying being with each other. Right. Even though it was on for all those seasons and it was number one, I never appreciated it as we were doing it. One never does. Yeah, right? When and things then, go really well. Yes, that's right. And to be able to go back and revisit it and hope that you can do it proud and introduce a, a whole nother section of, of uh, audience members to it and, and hope that they enjoy it. I just feel more appreciative of it this time around. Yes. Just as you returned to uh, Roseanne, uh, you returned as well to Broadway uh, with Edward Albee's Three Tall Women, which is playing. Mm-hmm. Um, explain to listeners what that play is about besides being about three women. Well, you saw it. It's a hard play to describe. I, I know, and it, there's going to be some spoilers. There are spoilers that I really don't want to get into because I think that that's half the fun for the audience. Glenda yeah. um, Jackson is amazing, as are you. Um, I mean, she, she is a legend. She was a legend when you were starting out. Acting with her every night, do you learn things? Are you just in awe? Are you just seething with envy? What, 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 <laughs> what are, what? With envy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a real collaborative effort, I'll say, between the three actresses and Joe to get this play up and mounted because I found it to be really slippery. Um, it, it was e- elusive to me in the rehearsal room for a long time. So we all became really dependent on each other. And that's what it feels like out there, that we're really um, trying to operate as a, as a solid team out there. It, the play, again, not giving away its secrets, is, however, about the arc of life and mm-hmm. aging and mortality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I noticed— And yet uh, has a lot of good laughs in it. It does have a lot of good laughs, <laughs> but also a lot of darkness. Yes, it does. Um, Albie was just about the age you are now, and I am now, when he wrote this play. As, as I'm watching, I'm thinking, oh, this is a guy getting on and thinking about mortality and what his life has been. Does— being the age you are, make it resonate for you? Yeah, it does, because my character specifically, I mean, we all talk about as when we represent different ages in the play, and I have a, a great little mini monologue at the end of the you play do. that I really, really enjoyed. Did you agree with your character's claims for why middle age is the best? Yeah, I do. Yeah? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I yeah. guess you won't know until you're old. Well, no, I'm I'm in the sweet spot right now, you know, and I, I say half of being adult done and the rest to look forward to. Yeah. You know, I'm at the top of this mountain where I can see in all directions, you know. Which is a, the great line of that sort of aria. You get the 360-degree view. Yeah. I mean, given it's that it's looking over this life and thinking about the choices made and who people become and they don't expect to become and all that— if I were in that play, I would be unable to stop thinking, well, what would I tell my 26-year-old self? Yeah, that has come across all of our minds. Yeah, well. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I thought that I would tell my 26—no, my 28-year-old self. Was I 28? I think I got an Obie Award for um, Balm and Gilead. Which is the Off-Broadway Award. I would have liked to have known then, as I was getting that, that I would be one of the fortunate people to uh, be able to spend the next— 
you know, 40 years doing theater and staying as passionate about it as I was when that was happening to me then. I think that would have been a a great comfort to me. I would have appreciated knowing that. Which is interesting, given that the Alison Pill character is so full of idealism and cheerfulness that is, we learn over the course of the play, perhaps not to to regard as slightly tragic. You're you're saying you lucked out and you were able to live your dream. Yeah, I did. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Uh, Laurie Metcalf, uh, it's been a pleasure. I thank you. Thank you. Three Tall Women is on Broadway at the John Golden Theater until June 24th. And the resumed Roseanne is on ABC. Coming up. When the great jazz guitarist Wes Montgomery stopped using a guitar pick to play, it made all the difference. There's a warmth in the flesh upon the string. So that was an immediate phenomenon with Wes's sound. It came from his hand on the string itself. That's next on Studio 360. Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, offering a language program that uses interactive dialogue and speech recognition technology to teach a new language, like Spanish, French, and Italian. Babbel is available in the App Store or online at babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L, dot Studio 360. Almost exactly 50 years ago, the great jazz guitarist Wes Montgomery died suddenly of a heart attack. He was only 45, and he had really become a a big star in his world. The thing that made his sound so singular, he played without using a pick. Instead, he just used his thumb, which was hard on his thumb, but it did give his playing this unusual intimacy and warmth. The first time a lot of jazz fans heard that style was on an album that came out in 1960. Our story about that record begins with another jazz player. My name is George Benson, and I'm a musician known as a singer and a guitar player. When I was a youngster, I guess I was about 15 years old, all of the musicians used to talk about this man named Wes Montgomery. They all came through a club in Pittsburgh, which is very famous, called Birdie's Hurricane. I walked by the jazz club, and I saw this picture in the window of a guy with a guitar, so naturally I'm interested. But the way he had it strung from his neck was like a cowboy, you know, with a rope around his neck. So I said, oh, I know this guy can't play nothing. But there was something about that name, Wes Montgomery. I said, you know something, I heard his name before. I better come by and check this out tonight. So I did. And I heard music like I never heard it before. And the guitar, like, could never imagine it to sound. I walked up close to that amplifier, because that was about ear level when you walked near the bandstand, and heard the most beautiful tone I had ever heard. The 
The story of how my father came to sign Wes Montgomery to Riverside Records is I actually don't know for sure how much of the story, the way my father told it, is true. He liked to say, if you saw this in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. My name is Peter Keepnews, and my father was Oren Keepnews of Riverside Records, who produced the incredible jazz guitar of Wes Montgomery. What happened was that Cannonball Adderley, who was one of the artists on the Riverside label and who was a good friend of my father's, came running into his office and said, I just got back from Indianapolis, and there's an amazing guitar player there, and you have to sign him. He grabbed a blank contract and ran out the office and went to the airport and caught the next plane to Indianapolis. I don't think it happened quite that quickly, but he definitely did make arrangements to go to Indianapolis and to find this guitarist, and he was prepared to sign him strictly on the basis of Cannonball Adderley's recommendation. Wes, although he was living in Indianapolis and had a day job at the time, he had done some touring he had done some recording, so he was not a totally unknown quantity, but he was not well-known, certainly. My father was so dazzled by the virtuosity and the creativity of Wes Montgomery that he did indeed sign him to a contract on the spot. I kind of agree with Cannonball Adderley that he was the greatest find at that time. My name is Pat Martino. I'm a jazz guitar player. The first time I heard Wes Montgomery playing, I was floored. Wes Montgomery stood out beyond all of that particular period of time in the late 50s and the early 60s. It has also been said that in the history of the instrument, there have been three men who have done something new, who have brought a new dimension to the instrument. Django Reinhardt, Charlie Christian, Wes Montgomery. Well, I wasn't trying to be one of the best anyway. I was just playing for my own amusement. He talked very intelligently when he spoke, but very sparingly. When he started playing, we knew why. He did his talking through his guitar, not with his mouth. This album was with first call jazz musicians. Tommy Flanagan was not yet that well known, but he was already recognized as one of the really uh, important young jazz pianists. Percy Heath was well-known for being the bassist with the Modern Jazz Quartet, which was certainly one of the biggest groups in jazz, and his brother, Albert Heath, was a very well-respected drummer. So this was really the first time that Wes Montgomery was playing with musicians who might be considered his peers. No disrespect to the other musicians he had worked with previously, who included his brothers, who were very good musicians, but this was the big time. This was New York. These were first-class New York jazz musicians, and the fact that he held his own with them was a big part of why this album garnered so much attention. When Montgomery played, of course, all the guitar players tried to get there for that because there was going to be lessons passed out like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> we wanted to find out what magic he discovered that we didn't know because he didn't play like anybody we knew. Nobody was playing the guitar quite like that with that kind of facility and with that kind of imagination. Incredible improvisational skills, and he had this technique of playing with his thumb rather than a pick, which was very unusual, and it, of building these solos from single lines to chords to octaves, which was really something new. The fact that he could be as exuberant as he was, as such a great player, with the use of his thumb, instead of a plectrum, was immediately staggering. 
Well, when I first started, I started with a pick, of course. Everybody else was starting with a pick. Man, I liked it from an amplifier to be on because I found out that when you practice without an amplifier for like two months, and then you use an amplifier, you hear more noise than you do notes. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I'll break that habit, so I just use an amplifier all the time. But while doing that, uh, I would uh, go into the night practicing. But I forgot I was disturbing neighbors. <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, very shortly brought to my attention. So then I uh, set the pick on the top of the amplifier and, and made it much of a rounder sound softer. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I'll use that until I get where I can play, and then I'll use a pick. There's a warmth in the flesh upon the string. So that was an immediate phenomenon with Wes's sound. It came from his hand on the string itself. When you play with your thumb, it becomes very personal. The dynamics are much more audible because you can play soft and suave, or you could dig in and play thumpy if you want to, get a nice thump when you play. Nobody ever got the sound that Montgomery got from the guitar with their thumb. I know I tried it many years. I have a lot of friends who play like that. But when I say like that, I mean like that. Nobody was exactly what he was. One of the greatest tributes to the instrument itself was his ability to transcend the mechanics of it and be so at ease in the process that it seemed like magic at times. The phrases that Wes would play, the, uh, the melodic continuity of what was included in his statement. Musicians didn't think like that, especially guitar players in that day. Montgomery took it to the hill. He made us like that stuff. It was unusual, but it was truly great and wonderful to listen to and to navigate through those wonderful changes, which he could do better than anybody. Aside from the playing, Wes was really focused on the environment, on the people in it. And there was a warmth and an aura that came from him that uh, just transcended the craft, the music business. Wes Montgomery's personality was very desirable because you would think that a man with that kind of talent and ability would be hard-nosed and very confident, you know, uh, out going outspoken, but no, he was laid back and friendly. In those years in the 60s, I remember, the music wasn't only a style, it was a way of living. It was a pleasure and it was a privilege to be friends of the greatest jazz guitar player in the world. And he let me know that I was truly his friend. After the gig, he said, George, you know, we're going over there for some breakfast this morning. You want to join us? As if he had to ask. <laughs> I said, yeah, Mr. Montgomery, Mr. Montgomery, I'll be right there, man. Where are you going? We'd eat chicken and waffles in New York. That was the dish that's now famous all over America. But in those days, there was only one place. And all the musicians hung out there. You'd see Frank Sinatra, maybe Sammy Davis Jr. on any given night. But it was also the local musicians' favorite hangout. And we'd go and have breakfast and he'd tell me things he would never say 
to other people, other musicians. He told me who was who and what was what. And the last time I saw Montgomery was leaving that place. And he had two things that he wished for all of his life. He hated flying, so he had to have a road car, the road hog itself, the Cadillac, and alligator shoes. That was his favorite thing. The last night I saw him pull away from the curb, he got in his car with his alligator shoes, and he had his Cadillac. So I knew he was a happy man. That is the jazz guitarist George Benson talking about Wes Montgomery, the great jazz guitarist of the generation right before his. Montgomery's 1960 album, The Incredible Jazz Guitar of Wes Montgomery, has been inducted into the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. Our story was produced by Jenny Cataldo for BMP Audio. Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, offering a language program that uses interactive dialogue and speech recognition technology to teach a new language, like Spanish, French, and Italian. Babbel is available in the App Store or online at babbel.com. And by the SC Group, whose charitable resources include FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds, at fjc.org. Studio 360. Jamie Harrison is one of the two founders and directors of a remarkable theater company in Scotland called Vox Motus. They make these fabulous theater pieces using all sorts of gadgetry and puppets and effects, which is why he was hired to create all the onstage illusions for the new $68 million Broadway show Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which just opened. But Jamie Harrison's latest passion project is something on a much, much, much smaller scale. A few years ago, he and his Vox Modus co-artistic director, Candace Edmonds, came across this novel called Hinterland that they knew they had to adapt for the stage. The novel is about two young brothers, Ariane and Kabir, orphaned refugees from Afghanistan who embark on this harrowing journey west, thousands of miles across the Middle East and Europe, heading for the UK to try to start new lives. Their idea was to present the entire story using hundreds of tiny models inside little dioramas. The result is an amazing one-of-a-kind show called Flight. If you can call it a show, it's almost more uh, a museum art installation than theater. Picture it like a merry-go-round with the two dozen booths surrounding it stationary. As I'm sitting there alone in the dark, this little diorama, no bigger than a shoebox, passes in front of me and lights up. And then another diorama lights up, and I'm hearing the dialogue from the tiny little figurine characters depicted in each scene, maybe talking about the tiny apples they're picking or the tiny phone they're about to make a call on. Anyhow, I was fascinated about what went into this production, so I went with my producer, Evan Chung, to a performance of Flight at the McKittrick Hotel, a theater venue in New York, to talk with Jamie Harrison about his production. What we're looking at here is one little... 10 by 10 inch plexiglass window with the two main characters. Oh, no window. So I could have grabbed them. You could grab them. That was part of um, 
what we wanted to achieve actually that we wanted the audience to feel like they could reach out and touch um, each of the characters it's just something about that fragility that was beautiful and that we wanted to to use in in the, the storytelling of these two brothers traveling across the world in his pockets Ariane has one plastic wallet 2000 US dollars one red mobile phone without sim one tiny book of Afghan poetry. Kabir has nothing in his pockets except dreams. He dreams of amazing adventures, impossible futures. He dreams of flight. Sometimes I feel guilty saying this, but I'll be honest with you. When we were, when we were thinking about making the show, we had a horrible moment when we sat and we thought, do people actually want to buy tickets for this story? Because it's in the news all the time. It's so harrowing and it's so difficult for us and, and for society to try to work out the right way forward. And it was one of those moments where you, you sit and you think, actually, no, we've got to tell this story. What is the point of being a theatre maker and you know uh, having these skills unless you use them for, for something purposeful. And, and and that was actually part of the reason we decided to sort of tell this story using the carousel and to use miniatures. I feel like we've achieved what we set out to do because a lot of people say, we came to see it because people said it was cool and we couldn't stop crying at the end. And for me, I couldn't have dreamt of a better outcome for the project. But, and it's, it's such an epic story, these two brothers going halfway around the world to live and escape and be free and 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 that that counterpoint to this tiny little mm-hmm. it, it is not in no way is it physically epic obviously it's the opposite yeah right yeah well it's yeah it's i mean it's obviously everything is in miniature everything is is tiny but we're really interested in the relationship between the observer sitting in a booth and feeling um, almost godlike it makes you know these tiny characters some of them are you know uh, six millimeters high and what that does in terms of our relationship to the characters and, and what we might feel about our power relationship to who they are and who they are in the world and what we can do about it. Hurry up, Kabir. So tell me where we're going. We're going to school so I can learn to be a world-famous singer and rock guitarist. Also a chef. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And where is this amazing school that will teach us all these things? London. Where is that? England, Europe, the world. But like here, this it, I I have always had a fondness for dollhouses and all that kind of thing. This is it's it's so each one is so extraordinary. As you're listening to the story and getting the music and the lighting cues and all that, but just the this guy sitting on a bed in a window beyond a, a, a sort of decrepit wall. There are so many different details in each one. With yeah. the, I mean, and there are hundreds of these, right? Well, there are th- literally thousands of individual objects there's um i think it's 900 uh characters the thing i I think people really respond to and the thing that i'm really proud of is is the tangible handcrafted skill that has gone into it you know and i think that's what what people love about theater experiences as well you know you're in the room with the actors who are offering something to you and here although they're not live actors it's it's an offering of thousands of hours of, of work and dedication and, you know, hand-making. All these little oranges on these trees were hand-made and hand-painted and hand-glued into position with a tiny little set of tweezers. And I think because 
I think that's part of the attraction of a doll's house. You know, you, yes. you, you can imagine the work that has gone into it. And so to see 230 of them tell you a story that we hope is, is, is moving and, and interesting to a contemporary viewer, is, is, it's, I'm, really, I'm really, really proud of it. Um, like here, there is a crate of oranges. It's just, I, I, can't, I can't say enough how, how gorgeously uh, done, executed each one is and how they go, it almost goes by too fast. Yeah, I, you know, a few I, people have I, I said that. Down, yeah, a few you know. people have said that. Let's come back and see it a second time just to, with stop action. That was something I was worried about when we were making it that we were all worried about was rhythm that you know we've got this constant speed of the carousel and is it going to send the audience to sleep right. because of its lulling you know you're sitting in a dark booth in a warm room with headsets on and so we worked really hard to 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 play to work against that and make sure that the the rhythms could change and in, in some ways it's a little bit like making what i imagine it'd be like to make a film or a tv program because of the width of the booth, there's only a certain amount of time that you have with each box before it travels past the booth. And so the size of the box um, dictates how long it can be lit for because you don't it lit in the booth beside. So a big box can only be lit for a very short amount of time before it moves past you. Because, because what each what we're seeing here, what each person sees is only a couple of feet across. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so for moments when we wanted to pick up the rhythm of the piece, we had to make the boxes smaller and make the models inside um, much smaller so that we could have many boxes lighting up quickly. Uh-huh. And for the moments when we wanted to sort of... Um, so it's like you're cutting quickly if you were making a film. Yeah, exactly. So it was kind of like a film process. Working that out, the, cue, the lighting cues, uh-huh. meanwhile the voiceover uh-huh. of, the, of the actors is going in your head, music. Uh-huh. The process of getting that right must have been... It phenomenally was, difficult immense and I'll tell you something our lighting designer um, Simon Wilkinson who's a long term collaborator of ours he actually has a previous life as um, a software programmer and he's, uh-huh. worked, he's worked for all kinds of big companies like Apple and he had to actually write software for us because um, not only are the, all the cues for the lighting and the sound and the, 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 it all has to be tied into the exact position of the carousel but that is happening 25 times around the the booth because there are 25 people watching but each offset slightly and there was no software out there um, in the theatre world because the theatre world's software is used to just running one show at a time whereas we're running 25 shows at a time so Simon wrote software to allow the, uh, the, the, the show to run smoothly and for each box to know exactly where the carousel is at that point so that they don't move out of sequence at any point in time I mean it, people it's lovely because people come in and they, they think of it as a really sort of artisanal piece. I was just going to say it's so it's so lo-fi yeah, and you, you can touch it, yeah. it and it's yeah. pre-digital but yeah. it is digitally but actually we've got seven computers through there running this thing <laughs> <laughs> and also there were um, two digital artists working on it as well. Um, a wonderful guy called Slav Skatola that we worked with quite a lot who created the boys' faces first so that we could 3D print the the boys themselves, the characters of the boys. So Candice and I went through a directing process digitally looking at these images of the boys on the screen and asking Savo, you know, it doesn't feel quite like he's, uh, you know, has the right attitude at this point. Can we hunch his shoulders? Can we drop his head? Can his left eyebrow? Um, And what that allowed us to do was to 3D print the boys 
everything else is handmade sort of from scratch. So what, when I'm looking here at the two boys talking uh-huh. to a guy, yeah. so their faces or their whole bodies are, so, are so digitally printed? Their whole bodies are digitally printed, but everything else that you see around them is handmade from the But 3D model printed making. them? 3D no. printed. Really? Yeah. I'll be honest, we had quite a few misprints where we'd accidentally printed the wrong character for the wrong box and they turned up and, you know, of course, it was, a, it was an arts project, so we were very tight on money and... We had to be creative at some point. Actually, this is one of the moments when we had to be quite, quite creative. Describe what's going on here. Um, so this is um, Kabir, who's lying in bed. Uh, and it's a bird's eye it's view. A, it's a bird's eye view, and it's um, him on his own because we're at that point in the story, we're dreaming with him. And then we cut to a scene where the, the sun is starting to come up, the light is shining in through the window. And what you can't actually see here is that's the wrong model. <laughs> Oh, really? And so what we did was we chopped his legs off, rearranged the body, and put a blanket over it. Yeah. So you can—I shouldn't really be saying that would be this, harder but, to do with the actors. Yeah, it would be a lot. <laughs> Have you ever done this one-on-one theater? No, never. I'd never done it myself. But we had seen some sort of performance art pieces where you were maybe, you know, taken into a, a cubicle or you'd be taken into a, a cupboard. Um, yes. And so we knew that the that that could be a very intimate and uh, immersive experience, but no, no, we hadn't done it ourselves. Right. The only other thing it reminded me of is, is in the 19th century, you must know of these things where they would have these many yards long murals mm. and they would unroll them slowly for yeah. an audience yeah. as you floated down the Mississippi. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like that. It's, 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 do you know, it was... Uh, my magic background sometimes plays into this. I spent a lot of time reading books about you were, the... You were a magician is what you were before you became a that's right. theater maker. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and and as a result, I'm one of those geeky people who spends lots of time flicking through old Victorian books. And um, I, I think that there was a, it was a big sort of influence in, in particularly in this piece. We've called this a narrative diorama scope in, uh, in sort of... Uh, in honor of those Victorian... Have you trademarked that phrase yet? (laughs) (laughs) There's a back catalogue of brilliant Victorian inventions to to look at and evolve and rework. And what I always try to do is to to sort of take those ideas but do it differently. That were done in stage magic 100 and 150 years ago. I mean, it's funny. It's funny I get uh, quite often... I get into a conversation about how oh it's such a new thing you know seeing all this magic in the theater and actually it really isn't <laughs> the victorians have done it all yeah. before some of the things they were doing on Lots stages of glass and mirrors and yeah right and they had horses galloping on stage and you know the horse races on these huge turntables and people emerging from these incredible trapdoors that would revolve the person around as it traversed across the stage and mm. then somebody could walk over it straight away and you know, these incredible ideas. And, uh, yeah, I, f- I find that period very... Uh, it's, it's really inspiring when you look at the, the ingenious... Um, there was almost a sort of an arms race for who could do the best effects right. over that period. And a lot of them have, have vanished. You know, we can't do Good them anymore. You. So now, now you look like a genius, even more than you are a genius. No. <laughs> Flight just closed after its run in New York, but Vox Modus calls itself a touring theater company for a reason. So check back at their website to see where Flight lands next. Jessica Salgado has made a name for herself with her raw, frank poetry about her love life and about growing up as what she calls a fat brown woman in Los Angeles. Her first book, Corazon, which means heart, was published last year to lots of acclaim. 
Here is Salgado breaking down one of her poems called What I Know. It's sort of a love letter to her hometown, Los Angeles. What I Know. One. Are the bus routes that take you in and out of downtown Los Angeles. Two. The names of every street between Silver Lake and Echo Park. The poem was written as a list of things that I know, right? And and I'm like, what do I know better than, than my own city? But even in, in when listing the things that I know of my city, um, it became things that I know of myself and then things that I don't know because my city's changing. Three, what each corner was before the gentrification. I grew up like really, really immersed in this Southern California Latinx community. And then slowly in my preteen and teen years, things started changing. And my neighborhood started slowly turning into a new neighborhood. It felt like my world was kind of closing in smaller and smaller until eventually I looked up and I didn't really even know the neighborhood I lived in. Four, the corner we found my father on after a diabetic shock. Five, the alley mommy had us walk through the night Papi hit her. I've been writing my whole life, so I think by now everybody's gotten used to the fact that I turn everything into a poem. I've grown up in a family that always tells stories. We very much keep part of our history by like, oh, and let me tell you the story about this time that this happened and this time that this happened. So it's a very natural thing for me. The only thing that's different is that I talk about a lot about addiction and abuse within my family that I think my parents used to really cringe at the idea of. Six, the clinic where I saw my first therapist when I was 12. Seven, the parking lot where a drunk papi tried to teach me to drive. Eight, the Rite Aid I got banned from for shoplifting. Nine, the store that does an ID for beer. I was really interested in capturing being a child and hanging out on my block and having to take care of my dad through his diabetes and my mom and me getting caught for shoplifting, all these things that you do in your adolescence, you know? 10, the old zoo. 11, Griffith Park and its secret corners. 12, Glendale and a shopping mall. 13, Santa Monica Beach and my two sisters. 14, Papi's old car parked on our block. 15, my body a glowing star within it. And then to have the moment transform where um, as a woman and I, I talk about my lovers. 16, my first love and his hands around me. 17, the jacaranda tree where I cried him out of me. 18, the dead end where I took my next lover. 19, the condom wrappers on the 101. A city will always change for you once you fall in love in it. And then different parts of the city belong to you and that person that you were in love with. All your lovers kind of wear the same face and it becomes your city. Twenty, Fairfax and Melrose. Twenty-one, another lover in his car. Twenty-two, his hand on my knee down sunset. Twenty-three, the apartment in Culver City. Twenty-four, the breakup in Westwood. Twenty-five, in Hollywood. Twenty-six, 
on Broadway. I have a poem that say all of my poems are about love, how I write about my parents, how I write about being bilingual, El Salvador, my body, my dad, his alcoholism, him dying, my grief. 27, the hospital in East LA. 28, the two fetuses it kept. 29, California hospital. 30, my father it kept. And at the core of all of that, it's my it's this immense love that I feel for the places I belong to and the people that I belong to. 31, the grief I left everywhere. 32, what the city takes. 33, what the city gives. What the city takes and what the city gives, right? And And it's taken so much from me. Like, I lost my father here. I've had medical scares here. I've miscarried children here. 34, what I cannot forget. I thought that would be a really interesting thing to take on there. Like, yeah, there's different pockets of L.A. where my heart got broken or where I felt, like, immensely in love. And I wanted to talk about that, too. And and then even then, there's parts of the city where, like, death found me in different ways. And so all of that happened as I got older. And that's what I wanted to show that pain and hurt and joy and love find us in different ways throughout the years in different parts of the city. 35, who I was before I knew what I know now, before these palm trees ever loved me back. That originally aired on the public radio show and podcast Latino USA. And that's it for this week's Studio 360. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, some role players at Comic-Con think that wearing brown makeup to be Luke Cage is the same as wearing green makeup as the Hulk. For as many people that actually want to defend the practice of blackface, my skin is not your costume. The role of race in role playing. Next time in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. 